Well, good morning, everyone. I'm going to take a moment to introduce to you Jim Grossman. Jim is interning here on the pastoral ministry track and is in service for the next nine months, which began earlier this month. And as you can imagine, Jim will have some preaching and teaching responsibilities, among other things. So um, we welcome your prayers, uh, your encouragements in every realm. Uh, This is a good thing, and all of you can be part of it. It's a biblical pattern that we're trying to do our best to follow. So that means it's right and it's good for the Church of Jesus Christ, both local and global. Again, as we do our best to follow in the footsteps of our Master, who is our pattern in everything. So what I'm going to do is just I'm going to have, have a brief prayer, a blessing for Jim and his family before Jim preaches. So if you would please bow with me. Father, we sincerely ask that you would please equip Jim and his lovely family with everything they need for doing your will. And may you work in them, Father, what is pleasing to you through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Morning. <clears throat> Find my notes here. Before uh, I start, I'd just like to uh, thank everyone who encouraged me uh, with the internship. Uh, it's not always easy to discern God's will. It takes a lot of uh, prayer. It takes faith. It takes a lot of humility, and I. Uh, I'm excited to be here today, and I just want to thank you. So, uh, the text before us today is Mark 4, 35-41, uh, page 710 in the Church Bibles. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the winds and waves obey him. Let's pray together and ask for understanding. Lord, we do pray and just ask for understanding of your word. We ask that you would teach us today. You are our teacher, God, the one who turns the hearts of the children to the Father. You are the source of wisdom and learning, and we ask, God, that you would give us wisdom, knowing that you give wisdom generously to all who ask without finding fault. Give us hearts receptive to your word. We know that those who plant and those who water are nothing. It is you who causes growth. It's you who teaches and changes hearts. I ask that you would use me as I speak. If I make a slip of the tongue or trip over words, that this would not distract anyone. Teach us, O God, 
Tune our hearts to hear your voice through the preaching and explanation of your word today. In the name of the Father, and Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, we've been preaching verse by verse, as is our pattern here, through the Gospel of Mark. Today we find ourselves in the fourth chapter, as we've just read, verse 35. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. This phrase, uh, and he said to them, in Greek, that's kai lege autois. It occurs as an introductory phrase in Mark's gospel 16 times. Matthew uses it five times and Luke doesn't. Um, And I say that just to give you an idea of the pace of Mark's gospel, that it starts more quickly than in the others. In Mark, the gospel starts without a genealogy or the count of Jesus' birth as well. And the opening of chapter 1 is that this is the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. When Pastor Joe preached that the first week we started Mark, I kept looking for it in my Bible margins um, to find out where in Isaiah it said that, and I couldn't find it. Later I found it was Isaiah 4.30, but before I found that out, I found out that it's also in Malachi 3.1, and I want to turn there in a minute, Um, but I'm glad I found it in Malachi because that text really matches well with what I'm preaching today. And... Excuse me, my sheets are out of order here. (laughs) Sorry about that. I forgot to rearrange them after last service. Uh, The Malachi text fits Mark well. Uh, The Bible, as Jesus knew it, was split threefold in the Hebrew ordering. Uh, The law, the writings, and the prophets. On the evening of Jesus' resurrection, uh, found in Luke 24, 44 to 45, on the road to Emmaus, um, Jesus, after Jesus was resurrected. If you'd like to turn there, you can, but I'll read it. Verse 45, uh, he opened their understanding so they might comprehend the scriptures. And in particular... I'd like to note verse 44 as well, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning himself. There in summary is the threefold book, the third section being titled by its first and largest book, the the Psalms. And the same thing is happening here in Mark 1 to 2, where the whole collection of the prophets is being entitled Isaiah the prophet by its first book. Mark 1 2 is in Isaiah 4.30, and at the end of the prophets in Malachi 3, 1 to 7, we have it as well. Again, you can turn there if you'd like. Malachi 3, 1. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be 
like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. In the next few verses, he talks about how it's going to be when he comes. Verse 5, you will come for judgment. In verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? And this is the introduction to the gospel that Mark wrote about Jesus. Verse 7 there in Malachi, God says, Turn to me, and I will return to you. The first words recorded by Mark of Jesus in chapter 15, The time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Repent there means to turn. Uh, the word in Malachi in Hebrew is shuv. Uh, it means either to repent or more literally to turn. Same word used by Mark uh, in Mark by Jesus, repent, uh, means to turn. So Jesus says turn and believe the good news. So Jesus is doing and preaching what he came to do as prophesied some 600 years before his birth, both by Isaiah and Malachi. Mark chapter 1, verse 38, Jesus says, Let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. I think we've been saying that every Sunday, um, but it is so important to set the tone of Jesus' ministry. Jesus is mindful of his mission. Mark, in recording the gospel about Jesus, uses that introductory phrase, um, and he said to them so often for a reason. Um, Part of it is that it adds to the pace of the gospel. And he was saying, and he was saying, and he was saying. And it focuses on what Jesus was saying, which is all pointing to his mission. He wanted to go to the other side to preach to more nearby towns as he came to do. Chapter 1, verse 39, so he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And in Jesus' mission, there's something to be said about the church universal, I think. Uh, Penetrating question as one commentator put it. And this question is, are we conscious of the gospel and of others who need it? I'm going to read what one commentator said. There's a warning in the fact that so many of the phrases common to ecclesiastical life, such as an established church or settled ministry, that suggest a static self-confidence rather than a restless movement. The call of the unreached The untouched, the outward thrust, was ever-present with Jesus. And if you really think about it, it is a penetrating question. This question of, are we conscious of the gospel and of others who need it? Jesus certainly was conscious of it. Uh, And in his own words, the next ones after turn and believe, Jesus said, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. He was on mission in verse 35, to get to the other side. Verse 36, leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. His disciples took him along with them, and the other boats were with them. This miracle story is in the context of Jesus preaching. He was just preaching in the crowd in Mark 3:32, with people around him saying, "Who are my mother and brother. Um, in 4.32, we, see, we saw just last week, 
that when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything. That word everything in Greek is panta. Uh, Another meaning of it is whole. It is used to describe everything, a whole picture, if you would. It is without a definite article in front of it. It can either have it in front of it or not. Without it, it carries a straightforward, intensive meaning to it versus when it does have it, carrying an extensive, inter- <clears throat> extensive, intensive. So in other words, in the text, the word everything or the whole picture carries not the extensive, comprehensive explanation of everything ever. For example, Jesus hasn't explained his death and resurrection to them yet. But everything so far had been fully explained to them The whole picture that the disciples needed had been given to them. They had heard the teaching with others, watching and receiving it as well, but it was done with Jesus when they were alone. As we see in verse 34, when Jesus was alone with his disciples, he explained everything. The addition of other boats in verse 36 is interesting. Mark is more fast-paced than the other gospel writers. And in a quick reading of the passage, you might wonder why the other boats were even mentioned. It's possible they were uh, fishing boats that were going out in the evening as they normally did when the winds would die down, or that they were part of the crowd that didn't go away when others left. But to say with certainty would be speculation. But for sure they were there and saw what happened and saw how the storm was immediately stopped. And it's interesting, they went through the storm as well. And so here we are at our first point, the horrible storm. So... Where did this horrible storm come from and why? Uh, This furious squall came up. You see it in verse 37. uh, And the winds and waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. This storm that was ahead, uh, Jesus knew it was coming. Uh, He knew that to get to the other side, they'd have to go through the storm. And he knew his gospel mission uh, to preach, to repent and believe the good news that he knew it wasn't going to be deterred or delayed. You know, they didn't, they didn't choose another route to avoid that difficulty. Uh, and interestingly enough, storms of this nature were not uncommon on the Sea of Galilee. In study, I found out that even today, if you go over to Israel and uh, go on the Sea of Galilee, the men in the boat would warn you there's always a profound danger of a storm arising without warning. There are climatic and geographic reasons for this. The surface of the Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. It's making it the lowest freshwater lake on Earth. Uh, Because it sits at the bottom of the Jordan River Valley, it's surrounded by steep hills and mountains. Valleys and gorges between those mountains can funnel wind from the west off the Mediterranean Sea or from the east off the desert, and the winds can stir up violent storms just like Jesus and his disciples hit crossing the sea. So Jesus didn't choose another route to avoid this difficulty. Furthermore, as he shows in verse 39, he has command over the winds and waves. He was there at creation, he spoke them into existence, and with a word they obey him. He controls the forces of nature, he controls what the winds and waves do. He could have easily saw the storm coming, got on the boat and said, you know, I need a nice nap winds, waves, be quiet and still, and they could have crossed over to the other side having never passed through this storm. He instead did not avoid this foreseen difficulty and chose to go across the sea and through the storm 
for a reason. And this was the reason that God is a God that sometimes puts people in a storm. And this was a horrible storm. They, it looked like they would drown. Verse 37, the storm was so bad, the boat was filling up, it was nearly swamped. It was so bad that experienced fishermen were afraid. It was so bad that it caused the disciples to ask Jesus, don't you care if we drown? This was a huge squall. In Greek, the word huge there is mega. Um, I looked up in the Greek for what squall was to see what kind of storm this was. It was a whirlwind, a tempestuous wind, a violent attack of wind, a squall, never a single gust nor a steady blowing wind, however violent, a storm breaking forth from black thunderclouds and furious gusts with floods of rain and throwing everything topsy-turvy. Fierce storms are hard to go through, storms at sea or storms of life. And if we're being honest, who doesn't ask why when a storm hits? Now, why were the disciples in this storm? The answer is partly obedience. They listened to Jesus and went on the boat with him. But really, it's because God is a God who puts people in a storm. He doesn't stop hardship from coming our way. Sometimes, for loving reasons, like with the disciples, he leads us into it. So then, the disciples were on the boat in the storm, not because of bad choices, but because of good choices. Not because they were disobeying Jesus, but because they were obeying Jesus. You can imagine, if you didn't really know Jesus and were looking in as an outsider, you might be tempted to say, who sinned? Who's not obeying God? You know, who did something wrong? And, and they were doing nothing wrong. They are simply obeying Jesus. And I hope that that encourages you today if you're in the thick of it, because you're simply following Jesus. So why does God do this? We can't misjudge God here. It's, uh, as Pastor Joe said when he was preaching last week, it's, it's like with the parable of the mustard seed. You don't want to misjudge things by how they look. It's easy to take a tiny mustard seed on the ground and it doesn't look like much is there. The same seed you could come back to a few days later and you still don't see any, any growth. And if you judge things by how they look on the surface, that'll always get us into trouble. If here... We see the storm and misjudge God or even misjudge the disciples. We'll miss the point. If we judge our lives based on performance, we are going to think, I'm in this storm because I did something wrong. Uh, you know, we'll ask, how do I get myself out of this? We might look for self-help books, 10 steps to get you out of the storm of your life. Or we'll think, you know, we will think I made that wrong decision and that's why God put me in this storm. And how horrible... That would be because that is not the case here. Instead, he is showing the disciples who they actually are. And that's the first point. God is using this horrible storm to show the disciples who they really are. There was chaos on that boat. In Matthew, they said, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. In Mark, they said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? In Luke, they said, Master, Master, we're going to drown. 
I mean, I can just imagine it. A large boat, big enough to fit 12, 13 men, waves just crashing in over the side. They're scrambling around looking for like a bucket to bail it out. And one of them, they're maybe yelling at each other, you hold the sail up. Don't let that oar fall out. And they're scrambling around, you know, where's Jesus? He's sleeping? Wake him up. And, and then just chaos as they wake him up. One saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. One saying, Teacher, don't you care if we drown another? Master, master, we're going to drown. You know, they, they were scolding him. Why, why are you sleeping? They weren't really going and, and begging him, saying, you know, please wake up, save us. And uh, hence point two, the horrible question. Don't you care if we drown? It's the worst question anyone could ever ask Jesus. And the reason that it's a really bad question to ask Jesus is that he came to earth to die for our sins. Philippians 2. Uh, of course he cares. Though he was equal with God, he didn't consider it something to be grasped. Instead, by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, because he cares. Once you know why Jesus came, you realize the question of God, don't you care, is a question that is, comes from a line of thinking born out of the chaos of a crisis. This is how much he cared. The disciples had everything explained to them that they needed. This is how much he cared. He's in the boat with them. This is how much he cared. He wakes up and he's going to take quick action. Now, I'm not saying that it isn't human to ask the question. It's very human to ask, don't you care, God? But it shows us where we're at when we ask it. And it showed the, where the disciples were at, that their thinking was born out of crisis for themselves. They were turned inward, uh, only thinking about themselves. They were saying, we're going to drown. They, weren't con- they were concerned for their own lives. They weren't thinking Jesus would save them despite having had everything explained to them. And the thing that I don't want to do is tell you if you're in a storm, don't be like the disciples. Just have faith. Um, Just hang on tight. If you just had just a little bit more faith, then God would save you. And I don't want to say like a cultural wisdom, like just believe because The only thing anyone needs to be special is to believe that you can be. And I'm also not saying don't have faith in a storm, but the point is that Jesus is showing them in the chaos that they are powerless against the storm. He's the God who put them in the storm, something they have no control over, showing them that they don't have control and thus they have need of a power beyond themselves. Pastor Joe shared a good help with me this week. He said that first, on the one hand, you're to be like God, and then, on the other hand, you're to know that you can't be like God. See, that's just the point, that when you know you're to be like God, and you know you can't be like God, then you know there's got to be some other power outside of yourself to make that possible. Enter Jesus Christ. First, Jesus showed the disciples their need. They had no faith. Then he showed them his saving power. He's about to calm the storm. So first, God shows us our need, what we really are. Then he shows us our Savior. And that's just the same with us. He shows us our need, and it's, it's not just on day one. 
It's not on day 2001, day 5,025. Honestly, sometimes it's every day. If we're being honest and paying attention, we need him every day. So how did Jesus handle this? How did he respond to his disciples? You know, did verse 40 come before verse 39? Did he answer them first? You know, in the midst of the storm, you know, let him wait it out, rocking in the boat. Why are you so afraid? Do you have no faith? And then let him sit it out for a while? I mean, did he, did he let them stew in it, knowing they'd done, you know, you didn't have any faith, you, you did something wrong, why didn't you have any faith? And I'm just, they're going to they're gonna deal with this storm, they're going to sit it out. Did he do that? No, because Jesus does everything well. And we see that the first thing he does is to care for them, to address their needs, and he does it immediately. You see that there in verse 39? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, quiet, be still. The wind died down, and it was completely calm. The verbal form in Greek is an aorist passive participle. Uh, That lets you know that the action taking place is done immediately. So immediately he got up, and immediately it was perfectly calm. It's completely calm. Some translations say perfectly calm. The Greek word used for completely or perfectly there is mega. So it was a mega storm that immediately became mega calm. Then afterwards, when he did ask them, do you think that he scolded them? You know, why are you so afraid? You still have no faith? Or was he asking them this after having cared for them first? He responds tenderly. He doesn't sharply correct or threaten to cast them away for unbelief. He didn't stomp on the seed. You know, he didn't pick a new 12, say, you guys are out. And he doesn't do that to us either. The Lord Jesus is very compassionate, full of tender mercy. Psalms 103.13, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. You can think of a father with a child, this kid just you know, freaking out, and you, just, you help him, and you come to him, and then you say, afterwards you ask him, after you've calmed them, why were you afraid? Uh, you know, in a sense, didn't you have faith? I, I'm always there to help you. And I think that's the right tone for Jesus asking them. Um, but they didn't respond to Jesus and his question. Instead, they were terrified after his response. And that's where this story is different from a father with a child. That's where the storm is different than something that would just get a child scared. They didn't respond to Jesus and his question. Instead, they were terrified after his response and turning to each other, they were asking, who is this? It was, it was scary. The winds and waves obeyed him. That would have been an epic thing to see and realize and ask, who is this guy? They recognized that it takes the power of God to control supernatural forces. In other words, Jesus is much more than a mere man. So after he showed them themselves, Jesus had showed them who he was, powerful, merciful, and wonderful. This takes us to our final point. So, so far, point one, God is a God who sometimes puts us in a horrible storm. Point two, God uses horrible storms to show us who we are. And point three, Jesus is a wonderful Savior. And so the response of Jesus to their unbelief is nothing less than wonderful. Yet, 
they feared greatly. This is also mega. So it was a mega storm that became mega calm, and then they mega feared Jesus. Who is this then that could cause this kind of storm and then calm and then fear? They said it. He's the one whom the wind and waves obey. He's Lord over creation, God of the winds, God of the waves. The forces of nature obey with immediacy. You could have not seen that happen and not be hit like a ton of bricks. To just see that huge storm suddenly come up and then suddenly it dies down and then you're like, whoa, who is this guy? It's, and it's that way that's the human condition. And then they fear when we're put before holy God and we realize he shows us who we are and he shows us who he is, then we tend to be afraid. We, we want to hide ourselves. We want to run away. And so we, we see in this story this suddenly mega calm storm, this suddenly, this fear. And that brings me back to Malachi 3.2 where Mark matches with Malachi. And the Lord who you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand in his way when he appears? You know, God does not change. I, the Lord, do not change. Malachi 3.6. So how did God deal with his people in the past? I'd like to think about that and look back. And to do that, I want to share a story with you. Uh, Tim Keller, a popular preacher, has a story about uh, that he shared with the beginning of his ministry. Before he started, actually, while he was still in college, he went to a question and answer session. And the question posed was about a seeming discontinuity between Israel and the church. And the man answering insisted that we were all one people of God. He asked them to imagine an Israelite under Moses giving their testimony to someone who asked for it. And they would have said something like this. We were in a foreign land, in bondage, under the sentence of death. But our mediator, the one who stands between us and God, came to us with the promise of deliverance. We trusted in the promises of God, took shelter under the blood of the Lamb, and he led us out. Now we are on our way to the promised land. We are not there yet, of course, but we have the law to guide us, and through blood sacrifice, we also have his presence in our midst. So he will stay with us until we get to our true country, our everlasting home. Then he said, now think about it. A Christian today could say the same thing almost word for word. And Keller says he was thunderstruck by that. He had held this vague, unexamined impression that in the Old Testament people were saved through obeying a host of detailed laws, but that today were freely forgiven and accepted by faith. Uh, what it showed him is that the Israelites had been saved by grace and that God's salvation had been by costly atonement and grace all along. How did God deal with his people in the past? He doesn't change. He says, turn to me, and I will turn to you in Malachi. Jesus says in Mark, turn and believe in the gospel. And people really haven't changed either. The disciples asked, Lord, don't you care? In Malachi they asked, but how shall we return? And in order to turn, you have to see yourself properly, weak, powerless to the storm, not knowing what to do. This was the disciples, this is the human condition, and this is you and I. 
And you know, the disciples, they didn't get immediately better, did they? They are still tiny seeds on some level that haven't taken root. But Jesus knew his own, and in time, they will too. You see, the disciples needed to see God for who he is. They needed to see that he is compassionate and kind, abounding in mercy. As the hymn writer said, Then to thy need he like a mother does speed. And he is compassionate and kind, abounding in mercy. And this story shows us that when you cry out to him, even if to say, wake up, why are you sleeping? Don't you see the storm? That if you turn to him, even in fear or turmoil or pain, that he will first meet your need and immediately bring calm to your storm. And then he will care for you tenderly. Therefore, he first shows us our sin and our need of him. Then he shows us our Savior and preaches we turn to him and believe in him, that we believe the gospel Jesus preached, that he saved us from our sins, that salvation comes only from the Lord. Let's pray, and Joel closes out in benediction. God, we cry out to you, knowing that there may be many here today going through a storm. We ask that they would cry out to you, And that, please, would you have mercy on their souls. Show them who you are and that you are mighty to save. That salvation comes from the Lord. May we know the tenderness of your mercy as we leave today. May you bless us and keep us. Will you guide us and comfort us? Please, would you show us yourself in in our lives, in our storms. Lord, in our striving in our crying out, in our getting up, in our setting down, in our coming in, in our going out, would you make us mindful of you? Show us your presence. Bring those of us who know you into deeper relationship with you, remembering who we are in light of you, and who you are, our Savior and our Redeemer, who has purchased our soul, redeeming us from the depths of the pit. We pray for any here who may not know you, Lord. Stir their hearts. Show yourself to them. It is your kindness, Lord, that leads us to repentance. We pray for kindness upon them, that they would turn to you and you would save them. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you would, if you'd stand, please. Here's my takeaways. We, we tend to like to be the hero of our story. But I think this story tells us there's only one hero, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the second takeaway is the hymn that Jim quoted for, Then to our need, he like a mother does speak. That's good news. Let's pray together. Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.